the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This is our final episode before Christmas, so I thought it'd be a good time to look back at a selection of the big stories of the year with some of my colleagues from the Irish Times. Later in the show, you'll hear from Laura Slattery and Mark Paul talking about some of the big stories in the media, hospitality and travel sectors. But first, I'm joined by Joe Brennan and Cliff Taylor to discuss some of the major stories from this year in Irish banking and the wider economy. I began by asking Joe Brennan to pick his story of the year. Yeah, I suppose the kind of the biggest kind of shake up story in in twenty twenty one is basically the continued shrinking of the the Irish uh, banking market. We saw um, Ulster Bank's parent NatWest come out in February confirming that they were pulling the plug on Ulster Bank. Now they said it would be a phase withdrawal, but I mean this is kind of like the result of the latest of a series of kind of reviews that have been carried out by NatWest, or formerly known as, as RBS, into the Ulster Bank unit since it bailed out the Irish uh, company to the tune of about €17 billion Euros during the financial crisis. I think the surprise was KBC, the only other foreign-owned retail bank left in the country. The surprise was them uh, deciding in, or announcing in April that they were retrenching from the market, which effectively kind of reduces the Irish retail banking landscape from five banks to, to, to three banks. Even though you have a reduction of mortgage lenders to three, you, you still have some kind of non-bank lenders that have come into the market in recent times, the likes of Dillusk or ICS, Finance Ireland and Avant Money. But in the SME space, we're effectively reduced to kind of two main lenders, um, Bank of Ireland and AIB. Ulster Bank would have had a fairly sizable and influential franchise in terms of business and corporate lending. Now, we know that permanent TSB are looking to take over some of that loan book, but it's from a very low base that permanent TSB is trying to kind of turn itself into, uh, from just being an exclusive uh, mortgage lender into uh, something of a, of a business lender as well. Another interesting aspect has been the fact that the state has uh, been selling down the shareholding in Bank of Ireland. It was 14%. Um, and they've been doing that in drips and drabs over the last little while. And now they've just announced that they're going to start um, selling some AIB stock into the market as well uh, over the next uh, few months and probably reducing our shareholding from, what, 71 72% to uh, shave three or four percentage points off that. So uh, this, at, at the same time as we're going to have only three domestic lenders, the state is trying to take a step back from its involvement or its shareholding in those big banks? And to a large extent, this has been facilitated by the two um, foreign-owned banks exiting the market. The problem with the Irish banking sector in general is that it has been retur- producing kind of very low levels of profit returns across the board by virtue of the fact that basically their loan books, the sector's overall loan book had halved in size between 2008 and before the, the COVID crisis, and largely due to, due to banks having to offload non-performing loans and also non-core assets that they were kind of told by the uh, European Commission at the time of their own bailouts or as part of their bailout uh, restructuring plans. So essentially you have a subscale a balance sheet across the whole uh, banking sector. And at least now with the two other banks, uh, while not great for competition good for the banks because the three remaining banks are basically carving up the loan books the the, the performing loan books of Ulster Bank and KBC between them and giving them a decent shot at rebuilding their balance sheets to a to a size where they can actually maybe generate the types of returns or profit that you would expect or investors would expect uh, from a healthy bank and we've seen the share prices of all three of the remaining banks rally significantly in the past year now, there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, primarily, it's due to the fact that analysts and investors see these remaining three banks delivering decent enough returns. I mean, they were delivering returns on equity of between 2 and 6% before COVID, whereas a healthy bank would be expected to deliver somewhere between 8 and 10% of basically a, a net profit of 8 to 10% of the amount of equity or the amount of money that investors actually have in these banks. This is seen as kind of giving them a decent shot at getting to that level. So it gives them a, a chance, you know, basically kind of brings in outside investors into, into the banking sector. 
And of course, the government is, is kind of maybe selling into that. You see Bank of Ireland having seen its own share price rise significantly. This year, you saw the government coming out or the Minister for Finance coming out at the end of June saying he was going to sell down the almost 14% stake that the government has in Bank of Ireland. It could afford to go with Bank of Ireland first because it was the only bank that really avoided nationalisation. And also it was a bank that had effectively repaid its, its bailout before they even started selling down those shares. Now, AIB is a more complicated story. I think people thought when AIB, when the government sold a 29% stake in the market in 2017, that AIB would effectively kind of be out at this stage. But obviously, the overall market hasn't been favourable towards banks, uh, not least with Brexit. You have a dysfunctional housing market. You have general lending remaining kind of loan demand remaining kind of low over, over that period as well. And questions about the economy uh, caused by COVID. Cliff Taylor, a busy year in the economic front. Hard to believe that for the first six months of this year, the economy was pretty much uh, entirely locked down. Uh, A couple of sectors allowed to tip away, but for the most part locked down and then began to open up. And we thought in October that we might be out the gate with this. But here we are with more restrictions being introduced just before Christmas. So um, for you, what was the what was the most important uh, story of the year? I think the resilience of the economy through it all, Kieran, has been the most important story. In the economic front, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that's not to gainsay the huge difficulties that have faced large parts of the domestic sector, the restaurants, hospitality sector, travel sector, all the sectors we know about, who are now facing into very uncertain times again. Uh, but there's no doubt that the structure of the economy and the fact that uh, a significant portion of it is represented by, I suppose, multinational-led sectors, the public sector and sectors that have been able to operate pretty much uninterrupted right through the uh, crisis has, has really protected us and protected us, I think, more than pretty much any other economy across Europe because of you know this peculiar economic structure we have in Ireland. I mean, it's, it's always difficult to kind of take the exact pulse of the Irish economy because <clears throat> the national figures are all are a bit messed up. The GDP figures probably going to show double digit growth this year. That, I think that's best ignored. But most of the forecasters now say that the, the domestic economy is going to expand by, by 6 or 7%. And that's, that's kind of an astonishing performance, really. And I suppose if you were to look at one set of figures, uh, I was trying to think, you know, are there ones, is there one figure, are there one set of figures that sum this up? And I was looking at the job figures for the third quarter of this year. And again, they're a bit affected by the number of people on the PUP and uh, wage subsidy schemes and all that. So a little complicated. But if you look... Stand back and look at the number of hours worked in the economy. We, we now see that that has exceeded 77 million in, in a week again, which basically takes us back to the, to the level of work that, that was taking place before the pandemic, uh, before the pandemic hit. Now, that's, I know that's a bit of an unusual indicator, not one we normally look at, but it's probably the clearest view of, of where we are now, that the overall level of activity has kind of reached back to where it was before the crisis. And I suppose what that tells us is that the modern sectors are flying ahead. Uh, they've increased very significantly and they've increased and they're employing so many more people that, you know, that in terms of the job market, that has, uh, I guess, outflanked the losses that are taking place in, in the domestic sector. But there's no doubt, of course, with the new restrictions and all the uncertainties on Omicron and how long this is going to last, that those sectors now face big difficulties heading into 2022. And a lot of people saying, look, just how much can bars, restaurants, travel companies, hotels take? You know, how many times can they close no matter what government supports are there? Uh, you know, is is there a breaking point here? And I think, uh, you know, a lot of kind of a lot of worry heading into next year for those sectors. But but overall, the story of, of, of this year, I think, has been has been the resilience of the overall economy. I suppose if you look at the final quarter of this year, a bit of a cloud hanging over the economy in the shape of inflation. We saw for November the CSO telling us that inflation was at a 20-year high of 5.3% and energy prices have been on the rise um, this year quite significantly, but also uh, other elements of consumer prices uh, rising too. And just wondering, Cliff, going into next year, what's, what's, what's your view in terms of inflation? DSRI uh, said recently that it sees inflation probably peaking around 6% in March and then tapering off uh, towards 2% at the end of the year. Is this something we should really be worried about? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, this is a big a big factor now in the cost of living. And central banks have maintained all along, look, this is a temporary spike. You know, this is a bounce back from the pandemic. It's, it's it, you know, it's comparing the year of 2021 with the year of 2020 when everything was effectively closed. 
Uh, we're seeing a once-off increase in energy prices, but it has just gone on now, and it looks like it's going to go on heading into next year. And as you say, it now kind of forecast that Irish inflation could peak at 6% or more early in the year, hopes that it will start to ease after that, and, and probably a reasonable chance that it will. But at the same time, we're still seeing worrying trends in the wholesale markets for energy, uh, the wholesale markets for, for gas. That's going to f- feed through to electricity prices. So, you know, we are, we are facing it. I think some worries on the inflationary front and a big, a really big dilemma there, I think, for the uh, for the world central banks and, and in Europe for the European Central Bank, because the economies are still battling with COVID. We have Omicron now, but at the same time, inflation is picking up and, and the key job of central banks is going to be, you know, has always been to keep to keep inflation under control. So I think there's going to be some really awkward discussions in the boardrooms of, of the main central banks, particularly the ECB next year about what its mandate is and what exactly it should do. We've already seen an increase in Bank of England interest rates. The Fed is now talking about perhaps three interest rate increases next year. Small ones, for sure, but but nonetheless, the cycle has turned. The ECB is still holding out, saying it will support bond markets till March, but there's no doubt that it's changed. And the thing that has changed is, is inflation. Joe, reduced uh, competition in the retail banking space and now inflation probably going to prompt interest rate increases. What's that going to mean for mortgages and for mortgage holders? Yeah, so if you look at them, part of the reason why Irish banks have, uh, banks across the Eurozone have an increase in bank shares and increase in value is the prospect of the ECB being forced, despite the fact that Christine Lagarde and other most of the members of the Governing Council have been quite kind of uh, dovish in terms of interest rates, trying to push out the notion of interest rate hikes in 2022, even though the market now kind of believes they begin to factor in rate hikes as soon as the second half of next year. And certainly investors and banks are looking at that and looking at the income increase that could potentially come from that for banks. And obviously, the main one here would be tracker mortgages. You still see a large number of, you look at even Ulster Bank, effectively a third of its loan book that's been sold is made up of tracker mortgages. And four, five, six years ago, no one would want to buy a tracker mortgage. And now we, we know that AIB is, is, is in talks with, with Ulster Bank about acquiring Ulster Bank's tracker mortgage book. And Part of the rationale would, there would be that they also see the, the, the prospect of ECB rates rising over the medium term and actually delivering a, a, a decent enough return from, from track and mortgages. They see the benefit of actually having these loans when five, six, seven, eight years ago, no bank would want to track a mortgage. Now, uh, let's turn to stockbroking. It was a busy year in the sector. Uh, good buddy stockbrokers uh, acquired by AIB, returning to a former uh, ownership structure which existed uh, before the crash in 2008. But much more importantly, in March, uh, the central bank fined uh, stockbroker David, the biggest player in the market, over €4 million Euro for breaching market rules. And that led to an enormous fallout um, for the stockbroker. And it's now uh, on the road to being acquired by Bank of Ireland. Again, it's uh, its previous owner. Um, you were right in the middle of that, Joe. You, you covered that story extensively at the time. It was extraordinary, the fallout uh, from that central bank uh, fine and extraordinary, the initial reaction from Davy. Yeah. So look at the fine itself. When you look at the fines that are being doled out by the, the central bank these days, uh, the fine itself of four million was was pretty small. But just the import of what happened was pretty significant. I mean, it's led to led to the biggest crisis in Davy's 95 year history and ultimately led to Davy actually having to put itself up for sale. I mean, if you cast back to the, what, what actually happened here, this relates to a bond deal that took place in 2014. It involved a borrower from, from, from Anglo-Irish Bank, uh, one of the so-called Maple 10 that would have been involved in buying shares in Anglo back in 2008. Patrick Carney, a, a Northern Ireland uh, property investor, he also went on to buy junior bonds in, in Anglo-Irish Bank and basically borrowed the tune of about £27 million from the bank to buy those junior bonds. And they rank somewhere between equity and senior debt in, in, in banks and are next after equity holders to be squeezed uh, in the event of a, a company going into trouble. 
his loans were sold on to Carval, uh, which is a private equity firm, uh, as part of the kind of the wind down of, of Anglo Irish Bank. And they were kind of valued at about, I think they took a view that the, the, these loans would be valued at about 2.4 million, that Carval could be, you know, would be happy enough to get 2.4 million just to kind of clear that element of the, uh, the liabilities, the Carney liabilities off its, off its books. And basically, Carney engaged Lebrun Private, which is a, a kind of a boutique kind of investment advisor. And that's co-run uh, by uh, Tom Brown, a, a former Anglo-Irish banker himself. And they came together with uh, Tony O'Connor, who would have been on the bond desk in Davies. And they basically worked out that they could sell on the bonds for maybe double the value at which Carval would be expected to kind of settle the liability. So they reckon they could sell it on for about uh, 5 point, I think it was 5.4, 5.5 uh, million. And they found a buyer, but the buyer actually happened to be a group of Davy um, executives and, and other members of, of, of the bond desk. The main issue with the central bank was that they never carried out the kind of the, the correct checks to make sure that there was no conflict of interest. And more importantly, they failed to put the, the, the whole deal past the compliance department in, in Davy itself. And it strikes me, though, Joe, um, here we are nine months on that um, people have probably largely forgotten about this. Of course, the news agenda moves on. There was a lot of change at Davy initially. And as I say, it was put up for sale. Brian McKiernan. Uh, who was running Davy uh, uh, left the business. Uh, Kieran McLaughlin stepped aside, and, and there were others as well. Uh, we were told at the time that uh, the Davy brand was toxic; it was finished. Um, and yet here we are nine months on, and they seem to me to be in pretty good shape. And obviously, they're going to be taken over by Bank of Ireland. We'll see what Bank of Ireland do. I, I don't get any sense that the Davy brand is certainly going to be uh, ditched by Bank of Ireland, but maybe it will. No, um, Bank of Ireland made it clear that the Davy brand is being retained. Actually, yeah, it's, it is remarkable how it has recovered from all of this. I mean, look at the, initially, I think the handling by 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 Davy kind of really surprised people. You know, if you consider that the the senior executives in Davy are the advisors to to some of the biggest PLCs in the land. And had some of their own clients been hit with the issue that Davy was hit with, it would have said, first thing, you need to get rid of the top guys. You need to um, make big steps. You need to come out and apologize. There are certain things. These would be the guys in the corner of the room advising their own clients to make steps that they didn't take themselves. And I think part of the crisis was brought on by the fact that they had years to prepare for this. And part of the crisis was of its own doing after the fine in terms of how it handled it. There was no public statement from Davy. The then chief executive of Davy came out with a statement to staff themselves, basically said that no one was harmed. He had to remove an element of that. It had to reissue that statement internally. And it was... Saturday, five days into the crisis before Davy, these Davy executives who uh, were not named at the time, actually had to fall on their swords and, 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 and exit the company. When it was put up for sale, I think people thought this would be sold at a discount. I think there were values of between 350 and 400 million on the, on the company itself. And there was speculation that this could actually be sold for less than 300 million, that, you know, it would be deeply discounted because of the reputational damage, because it would be losing clients left, right and centre. And this ended up being a company that was sold ultimately for 560 million, way above what even the analysts had expected or what industry observers saw as a, as a fair price for that before the, the, the crisis. Yeah, it's an astonishing one. And interesting that, I mean, Pascal Dunne, who welcomed the transaction with uh, Bank of Ireland and said it would uh, bring an end to an uncertain period for Davy and provide it with a well capitalized owner. Uh, the irony is, of course, you know, for all the talk of Davy being a toxic brand, Bank of Ireland, uh, the fine that Bank of Ireland is going to receive for its role in the mortgage tracker scandal is going to be a multiple of what Davy uh, was fined. Yeah, look at what the whole tracker investigation started in 2015. We're now in 2021 and going into 2022 before we actually see a resolution there, before we see the two main actors in the Irish mortgage market being fined for their participation in the in, in the tracker mortgage scandal. You see, AIB has been fairly forthcoming in terms of the level of provisions that they have set aside for an inevitable fine. Uh, they've put about 70 uh, million, whereas Bank of Ireland has 
about 72 million of overall tracker-related kind of provisions. And within that, they have a sum which they haven't actually clarified in terms of how much of it is earmarked for, for, for the tracker scandal. But up until now, the fines for the other banks have exceeded expectations. So the big question is, is 70 million AIB's case and whatever in Bank of Ireland's case, is that enough? Yeah, OK. Uh, Cliff, uh, a big year on the corporation tax front. Lots of discussions uh, taking place at OECD level. Joe Biden's election as US president, I think, changed the dynamic there. And for the first time ever, we had an Irish government sort of moving away from its long-held position that 12.5% corporation tax rate in Ireland would never be changed and was sacrosanct. And we're now heading for uh, a 15% level, although it's hit a bit of a wobble, I think, in the US Congress uh, recently for for Joe Biden. You were covering that uh, extensively. How significant is that going to be? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really significant, Kieran. I mean, it's a long burner from the Irish point of view, and and the implications of it are probably going to take a few years before before they're clear. And and some of them will relate to the fifteen percent rate. Uh, you're right, but a lot of it would relate to what happens in the weeds of this story, what it means for the big multinationals, and how they change the way they organise their finances and their investments over the next kind of five or ten years. You know, s- stuff that is going to take a lot of time to become clear. I guess. I mean, I think. In fairness to the government and in fairness to Pascal Dunne, who I think they did a good job on, on this one in a difficult position or as good a job as they could have. The rest of the countries are the vast bulk of the countries involved in the OECD agreement signed up in the middle of the year to this formula of uh, a minimum global corporate tax rate of at least 15%. And Ireland didn't really have a strong hand here because if the rest of the countries are signing up, then it doesn't really matter whether we sign up or not. This is going to be this is going to be what happens. But was it not the case that we could have vetoed it at EU level? We could, but if the US introduces a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%, then the Irish 12.5% rate is kind of moot anyway, uh, because the companies will be coming here and investing and paying 12.5% here and, and, and paying more when they go back to the US. So the, one way or another, the advantage of our 12.5% regime was going, to, was, was, going to be, uh, was going to be gone anyway. So I think we did get a, Ireland did get a kind of an important concession to come on board in keeping the rate at 15% because there are countries like France who would only jump at the chance to increase it further in, in over the next few years to 18 or 20%. And we've seen this week now that the EU uh, will today uh, publish its um, its plans to incorporate the 15% into EU law and, and, and will stick to the 15%. Uh, it will also apply to the very largest domestic companies in Ireland, which is which is interesting and something the government probably hoped to avoid. But at least most of the SME sector will be able to remain, or all the SME sector will be able to remain at 12.5%. But there's one new uncertainty, I suppose, over all this, which is what's happening in the US Congress. I mean, as you said, Kieran, it was the election of Biden and his programme that gave a big boost to the OECD programme in the first place. But now it looks like he's struggling to deliver at home drama in the US Congress, particularly the Senate this week, where uh, Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, uh, the key kind of swing figure in all this, has has decided to vote against Biden's legislation, big economic legislation, the Build Back Better plan. And that's the legislation that includes the the equivalent of the minimum corporation tax rate, if you like, in America. So a lot of uncertainty about whether America can deliver now. And while the OECD and the EU will push ahead I think there's a question mark now over whether this can survive as a global deal because the rest of the countries will be saying, well, if the biggest player isn't on board, uh, you know, if America's not bringing its ball to this football game, then what's the point of, do- of doing this? So I think there's there's a question mark over this and a lot hangs now on what happens in the US Senate over the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, let's talk about housing as well, Cliff. Uh, another year has gone by and we haven't solved the housing crisis. Um, I'm not sure we're, we're even a step closer to solving it, but maybe you have a different view on that. Um, are we any closer? I don't know. Uh, I mean, the government did publish its big housing plan. I think there are some good things in that. Um, you know, for example, the progression of the cost rental model uh, seems to be the right way to go. Uh, there are plans to build more houses. There are plans to free up the planning system so that all this can be done more quickly. Uh, but it just seems to take a long time to deliver. Uh, if you're looking for, for silver lining, there is, you know, some sign that uh, house building has started to pick up house commencements have started to pick up in the second half of this year you know we could be looking at uh, next year maybe 30 35,000 completions uh, but there's still a historic shortage there in both the uh, 
the house buying market and and a huge crunch in the rental market, uh, and and you know it's clear that the the answer is more supply in terms of and the and the right kind of supply in in the house buying market, but a big issue there of how that's made affordable for for large numbers of people, and there's this huge crunch in the rental market now, <clears throat> and this kind of irony that. Despite the fact that rents are at all-time highs, private landlords are actually falling out of the market now. They don't want to be involved. They say, you know, we can't make money out of this. Uh, so there are some real, I think, dilemmas there. A lot of them going back to the cost of building and the cost of building houses and apartments in Ireland, which just seems to be higher than anywhere else. It's, it's a real, I think it's a real conundrum for our competitiveness and a real, it's obviously going to be a crunch issue for the government uh, when hopefully we get out of the worst of this pandemic. Yeah, okay, we'll leave it there. Joe Brennan and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking to Laura Slattery and Mark Paul about some of the big stories of the year in the media, hospitality and travel sectors. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. I'm joined now for this part of the show by Laura Slattery and Mark Paul of the Irish Times as we look back on some of the major stories of 2021. I began by asking Laura Slattery for her choice of the big media story of the year. I think the most important story for the Irish media was one that actually happened near the start of the year, and that was Dennis O'Brien leaving the Irish media sector when he sold his radio group Communicore to um, Bauer, which is um, a German-owned conglomerate with a lot of media interests across the world. And the radio stations here, which of course include the national stations News Talk and Today FM, are now part of Bauer Media Audio, which is a kind of a London headquartered subsidiary of, of Bauer. And it's it's all change. I mean, we've yet to see what, what Bauer are really going to do with all the stations that they've bought. But this is really at the end of a very interesting era. 32 years ago it was that Dennis O'Brien first uh, invested in uh, what was called then Classic Hits 98 FM. And, of course, we saw a huge kind of explosion, really, of his media interests about a decade ago when he uh, built up that stake in independent news and media, which, of course, he sold a few years ago to uh, the Belgians and Media House Ireland. And so that's the sort of the, the end of, of the sort of Dennis story, in, in a sense. I mean, I mean, it's been a very uh, a tense time, I think, in particularly in terms of concerns about the concentration of media ownership, as I said, about a decade ago, maybe a sense that, you know, regulators could have done more and politicians could have done more. But he himself has said, you know, it was just the right time to sell. And uh, this was the, as good as the price as he was ever going to get for those those radio stations. Yeah, it was a big play in the media market. Uh, no question about that. Mark, any thoughts on, on that, actually? Uh, any Any sense of why Dennis O'Brien would have chosen now? To step off, I mean, you're somebody who covered his shareholding in INM, which really didn't work out for him very well uh, in the finish. And, you know, the ODCE is still involved in investigations into INM and what went on there uh, prior to Media House uh, owning it. Um, well, in, in terms of the timing, well, look, because a buyer emerged, I suppose, is probably the first thing, you know, because there was a buyer there. Look, I mean, Dennis O'Brien wanted to get out of the Irish media market for a long time. He wasn't really making any money in it anymore. Um, um, you know, his, particularly with his involvement in I&M, um, you know, prior to getting out of Barrow Media, it was, uh, it, it, he, he was, uh, uh, you know, arguably a, a lot of the stuff that was happening around the investigations into I&M and, and it, was a, it was a drag on the company's reputation. Um, and so in terms of the timing, look, a buyer emerged uh, for Barrow Media just like a couple of years ago, a, a buyer emerged for I&M and he took the opportunity to get out. Um, and I'd say he's glad he's out now. Any major changes at the stations, Laura? Under the new owners? There really hasn't been that many. I mean, I suppose one that made headlines was, uh, in effect, the lifting of the ban of contributors from the Irish Times to the former Communicore stations, which had arisen in recent years after a column that uh, Fintan O'Toole wrote about sexism at Newstalk. And Paul Keenan, who heads up Bauer Media Audio in, in London and is, in effect, I suppose, you know, overseeing this, he was just saying, you know, I, I made it clear to Simon that Simon Machunka, the, the CEO here, 
that it's up to him, you know, they can make their own editorial decisions. But lo and behold, as soon as the deal was completed, that ban was lifted. Um, there's been very little kind of programming changes. In fact, there's been, a, you know, one or two here and there, but some of them I don't think you could really connect to the change of ownership. And there's been an assurance that they want to keep news talk, which I suppose would have been a, a concern that there's maybe it, it's a bit of an anomaly, a speech station within the Barra group, which is mostly uh, music focused. So I think their their big push is going to be on digital and sort of trying to carve out a role for its, you know, digital music stations in the age of Spotify and smart speakers and all of these things that, you know, could threaten the overall popularity of, of radio with, with the younger group. But in fact, you know, in terms of the ratings, um, what we see in the listenership figures, and they did have some big advertising campaigns this year, is that Newstalk and uh, Today FM are doing pretty well, you know, they're doing quite well. Mark, what was the biggest story for you this year? Well, the biggest story in general for me this year was uh, was the, 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 the story around Ireland's corporate tax. Um, I mean, it's, you know, ever since I've been in business journalism, uh, uh, this has been an ongoing story, uh, whether it was the European Commission or other European countries that were trying to get Ireland um, um, to move on corporate tax. Um, and, and then Ireland this year, it wasn't just a European issue. Ireland found itself at the centre of a global story with so much at stake. Um, I mean, everybody knows how important the FDI sector is to the Irish economy. Um, and uh, uh, so there was a lot at stake for Ireland, a lot of pressure on Ireland. I mean, if you've got over 130 countries um, have effectively indicated their willingness to sign up to something, and Ireland is one of about, uh, you know, less than 10, uh, a handful of countries at the time, including a couple of tax havens um, that weren't signing up to it. Um, uh, there was an awful lot of, of, of pressure on, on the Irish government to get a result from its, uh, its decision to stand outside the process. Um, um, which they managed to get, and, and and the story is still continuing to be important. I mean, we see that in, in, in Cliff Taylor's story um, 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 on the front page of the Irish Times uh, today, Wednesday, uh, which shows uh, that, you know, I mean, Irish companies are going to pay, very large Irish companies with turnovers of more than 750 million euros are going to pay higher corporate tax than, than the government had thought, at least as the, in the law being transposed. The, the way that it's written at the moment, unless that changes. Um, so it's a story that, uh, that's been going on for about 15 years and it's the culmination of all of that. And, uh, and, and, and it'll be a long time, I think, before Ireland finds itself at the centre of a story again, like it has done with corporate tax over the last number of years. Yeah, mind you, it's had a bit of a wobble, hasn't it, in the United States? Uh, it looks now as if um, Joe Biden has run into problems in Congress with the legislation of which this is is part. So we have to see how that plays out. And the US obviously a big player in this whole thing. So if the US, if he can't get that through Congress, um, the whole deal might be might be in jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, this this was this was a danger that was flagged at the start, and this was something that, um, when Ireland was under pressure, um, and from certain quarters to just sign up regardless. I mean, there was people, you know, uh, uh, there was people writing articles and, and and making comments in public saying that Ireland was basically making a disgrace of itself publicly, um, and by not signing up, and that and, and that you know, it kind of looked like a a really um, um questionable decision. But but one of the 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 the, the points of, of rebuttal that were put forward by Irish policymakers were that look we don't know if this is going to get through the US and 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 now Joe Biden's agenda looks to be um, um you know kind of uh, we're, we're kind of waving from side to side like a reed in the wind and, and and there's no guarantee at all that he's going to get this over the line so look the story hasn't finished yet um but the story of corporate tax and corporate tax avoidance and, uh, and 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 exchequers all over the world looking to extract their fair share from from uh, from large companies. That story itself isn't going to go away, particularly after the pandemic. I mean, um, every single uh, government in the Western world has has borrowed to be the band to get through the pandemic, um, and uh, and they won't be able to do it forever. Um, and so they're going to need tax revenues in order to uh, support those levels of debt, and uh, and corporate tax will play a role in that. And I just don't think the kind of corporate tax gymnastics that we've seen over the last 10 or 15 or, or years or so um, and these kind of fancy schemes I, I just don't think that they're going to wear anymore I mean um, uh, governments won't wear them and uh, and, and, and in, in, in the public sphere as well I don't think uh, that the public will accept it anymore and that's why Ireland moved and that's why you know this story will uh, will continue to be important. Laura, it was another busy year on the streaming front we've yet more players in the market and probably more to come um, you've now not just got Netflix and Prime, Apple are in on the game, Disney Plus making big inroads as well. Um, and there, there are many other players on, on both sides of, of the Atlantic. It's become a huge space, hasn't it? Um, and a very competitive space. I wonder how that's going to, how that's going to play out over the next couple of years. 
Well, I suppose that the really striking thing for me over the last two years has been actually the Disney story. It launched in, in Europe in the middle of the, the first wave in 2020 and immediately uh, racked up, you know, uh, more than 100 million subscribers, you know, much faster than Netflix ever did. And the most recent report is that it's planning to spend something like 33 billion on content uh, next year, which would far exceed anything that Netflix has done or any other company. And that does include a huge European spend and on perhaps on programs and, and TV series and films that it wouldn't be traditionally known for. Disney, of course, it launched with the sort of its huge franchises, you know, Marvel, Pixar, a lot of content aimed at kids on the service. But it's already, I, I suppose, I look on, on something like the Beatles documentary, Get Back, which I haven't seen. It's eight parts, uh, Peter Jackson. But it's kind of a bit like the uh, Disney Plus's equivalent of Netflix's The Crown in the sense that it brings in a different audience, maybe, you know, a more adult audience, um, somebody who wasn't traditionally maybe tuned into Disney Plus, but now is getting personal value out, out of it themselves. And that sort of, you know, rewards um, rewards customer loyalty and keeps down churn. And we've yet to really see if, if churn has become a, a factor in this business. Netflix's figures were obviously softer in terms of subscriber growth in 2021 than they were during the pandemic, the first uh, year of the pandemic, I should say. But um, I think a lot of people think there's still probably more growth uh, to come for those two at the front in particular. Now, there's a lot of other interesting things happening on, 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 on you know, on the fringes. There's a few new services launching, as you say. And um, we have yet to see really the big play from HBO, which is Warner Media's company. Great reputation for, for really high quality dramas. Um, Mayor of East End was another one of theirs this year, which I think was just far, you know, uh, superior to a lot of the stuff on on Netflix and Prime and Disney and so on. But um, they haven't really done their European launch yet. And when they do it, they're going to be allied with Discovery Communications. And we, we don't know how that's going to play out yet. And these are a lot of big, um, big gambles, I think, uh, in a sense that for the companies that, you know, aren't the front runners, they need to sort of, they're playing catch up to a certain extent. Yeah, it's a, mind you, it's a lot of money to subscribe to all of these services. I presume uh, consumers are going to cherry pick what they want and what's the impact on traditional broadcasters like RT and BBC let's say if the streamers are holding if they're developing more and more content probably holding it a bit closer to themselves what's the impact on the traditional broadcasters yeah no I think it is ultimately going to be a very tough impact on all traditional broadcasters particularly I suppose you know you know all broadcasters that are limited to a single nation in effect you know are at a disadvantage compared to international players um and of course you know of course they're not completely limited to a single nation or to e can sell its dramas abroad but it's very hard for it to raise the finance necessary to sort of compete on the same level and that has a lot of you know arrangements that we saw this year for example there was a canadian belgian irish uh, co-production in, in a show called hidden assets there was a lot of american money in the gangster series they had called kin so, you know, it can still produce good drama, well-written drama, drama that, you know, 10 years ago and even five years ago would have made a huge splash. But now, you know, I think at the fringes, there is that audience that, that is tuned into apps and responds to what's on apps and, and doesn't necessarily watch the latest, you know, BBC 9pm drama. So there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a, there's a costs, costs are weighing on all of these public service broadcasters, even though they've got the advantage of public funding. Um, it's actually interesting. Um, the BBC is celebrating its centenary next year. And of course, that was, you know, back to radio originally. But but Disney is only a year after that, its centenary. And they both started off in very different industries, Disney in, in film, BBC in radio. And now they're essentially in the same space. You know, they're both competing on, on the screen in the corner of the living room. And, you know, the, that's a lot of firepower that, that Disney has compared to the BBC. In terms of the Irish film sector, is all the streaming and development of content, is it good for the Irish film sector? Are we seeing a lot of work come here? And I, I guess, I mean, the Irish film sector really hinges on tax breaks, doesn't it? If our tax breaks are attractive enough, the, the filmmakers will come here and if they're not, they won't. Well, it's almost like that's the baseline. Like you need to have those in place because they're, you know, all, all these um, huge companies are looking for the most cost effective way of doing things. Now, there is another factor at the moment, you know, not that I'm saying that um, tax breaks aren't essential because I think they, they are. But, you know, a lot of studios in North America, for example, and, and even in, in the UK are full up. And so people are looking for places to make 
content. Like we saw even this year, it was quite interesting. You know, Disney was in town um, making the sequel to Enchanted. I think it's called uh, Disenchanted. But they were using production space in the RDS. Now, obviously, the RDS was available because there wasn't any other events on. But it was sort of, it was interesting that, you know, that, that you know, other places where, you know, all the, the names that we know, the studios that we know, Ardmore, Ashford, uh, Troy, they were booked out, you know, with Netflix, with Apple, with other these other big names. And so they were sort of, you know, they were, <laughs> they were going to maybe a non-traditional space to make their film. And, you know, we, we were going to have more studios coming online now in the next few years. And of course, there's always a risk they could become white elephants. But at the moment, it looks like they actually are going to... Um, do good business and this is all part of the big global <laughs> production boom that sees no sign of uh, finishing anytime soon. Mark, let's talk about COVID. Another really tough year for the hospitality sector and um, for air travel, for the live events uh, sector as well. I mean, for the first half of the year, it was a wipeout really for, for those three areas. Um, and then they then began opening up and things were loosening up a bit. And then the hospitality sector hit with more restrictions just before Christmas this year, it's it's really really tough, and a lot of places have decided, I think, not to bother opening in January. It's simply not worth their while. You know, when the dust settles on all of this, how many players are going to be left standing? I think it's just an impossible question to answer, and that's not dodging it. But we don't know how consumers are going to behave, um, and we don't know what level of state supports are going to be available in the medium to long term. What sort of state supports are going to be needed? Um, we don't know how. Um, um, it's sort of like we have a, a, a kind of a an analog hospitality industry when we're heading into a digital world. We just don't know how it's going to play, you know. Um, I mean, pubs were already closing at a feral rate of knots before the pandemic. Um, and once you take away the state supports for pubs that are keeping a lot of them open at the moment or a lot of them for, out of liquidation at the moment, um, it's, it's, it's hard to know what the rate of attrition would be um, and, and once the pandemic finishes. Um, and we don't know how international tourism uh, is going to revive and to what extent. And, 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 and we don't know international aviation to what extent that's going to recover. And, and you have to throw into the mix climate change and, and, and taxes and, and, and so on and aviation there. So we don't know how many people are going to fly around the world. Um, and we don't know how consumers are going to behave. We don't know how the virus is going to behave. So I think it's, it's, it's one of the, the the big challenges in the industry then is 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 you know all of those unknowns and that level of uncertainty and um, it it really is a, is a, it really plays against investment in the sector i mean if you have a lot of capital to invest i mean why are you going to invest in an industry where you don't know and when you're going to be shut down you don't know what's going to happen you know you know maybe maybe there's another pandemic around the corner or maybe there's a, another virus variant around the corner that'll throw the whole thing up in the air there's so many unknowns um, and uh, 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 you know one big unknown is what will happen um, and how will what will happen when the government takes away state supports? And and how will that happen? Um, and how will they take it away? And and if they're on states, I mean, hospitality businesses are effectively on state supports. You know, corporate dole for you know uh, twenty months now. You know, um, um, uh, you know, if that continues for you know twenty four, twenty six, twenty eight, you know, you know, thirty six months. Um, um, it effectively gets built into their business models. So how do you remove that without a huge level of liquidations? And that's a problem. You know. And on air travel, uh, climate change is obviously a huge item now. And we had the COP26 summit recently in Glasgow, uh, the outcome of which was a, a bit disappointing. But there's no doubt that we're facing, it would seem we're facing higher airfares and we're facing more taxes on the aviation sector. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the aviation sector has for the moment been left outside of the state's carbon budgeting process. Um, and there was a recommendation from the Climate Advisory Council that they, that they think about adding it in, um, in, in the next couple of years. But it's outside of that sort of carbon, carbon budgeting process. But there, there are taxes on the way. Um, um, and, and the push for that is coming from Brussels. Um, and from the European Union. Um, there is currently no tax paid on aviation fuel. Um, and that's a big bugbear for people in the, in, 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 in the, you know, for environmentalists. And, and, and you don't have to be an environmentalist to have concerns over that, I suppose. Um, and, and so there's going to be changes there. Um, um, the, the kind of short haul, the sort of aviation fast food, uh, if you like, the, 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 the kind of the, the, the short 10 euro, you know, one hour flight, the sort of the things that Ryanair specializes in, um, you know, the sort of thing, the sort of flights that you would have taken several times. A lot of people would have taken several times a year and um, before the pandemic and before the climate change uh, thing really came to a crescendo like it is now. Those sort of flights, um, 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 they won't be taxed out of existence, but they'll certainly be taxed to a level where um, and people don't take them as frequently as they do. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the, the aviation sector is another where, I mean, uh, you know, again, it's, 
when you put the level of state subsidies and public cash into an industry that has been poured into aviation over the last number of years, inevitably, inevitably there will be distortions, and we don't know how those distortions are going to play out. I mean, Ryanair, for example, you know, I mean, hasn't taken any um, state bailouts or anything like that, but a lot of its competitors have. So there's a lot of market distortions there, and uh, and and again, a huge amount of uncertainty. And I wish I had, um, you know, uh, more. Uh, crystal clear opinions on this and that there were better answers as to what's going to happen but nobody including the people who run the industry and the people who regulate it has a clue what's going to happen with the aviation industry over the next number of years um, but the only thing that's certain is that we'll be flying less probably in five and ten years time. Lord, it strikes me that a lot of traditional news publishers have had a good pandemic including the Irish Times we had results out earlier this year which showed that our operating profit doubled and the number of subscribers has gone up. And I think that's been the case for uh, most uh, what we would call newspaper publishers. Um, this transition from print to digital still going on. But it was, it's been pretty good, really, uh, for those traditional players, hasn't it? Well, I think what sort of saved um, newspapers and newspaper groups in 2020 was this uh, growth in subscribers. I don't think it was all completely benign and we still saw a massive drop in advertising revenues overall. And it's going to be very difficult still to replace um, print advertising revenues with uh, digital ones to the same same extent. But I think, you know, there is a sense perhaps that consumers are used to paying subscriptions for all the aforementioned uh, Netflix, Prime, Disney, and that they will pay for a news outlet that they value. Uh, and that's really what the industry has to, has to double down on. But, well, there's definitely some dark clouds on, on the horizon. I mean, e- even towards the end of this year, we saw something that, that only pops up occasionally, which is that the cost of paper went up um, because of shortages. And we, we saw that across a whole load of different raw materials. But that would have, have affected some uh, newspaper publishing groups. And we also don't really necessarily have great vision anymore on, on, on circulation figures. They're not published the same way that they used to be. But certainly print circulation, that is, uh, it's not what it was. And whether or not companies can continue at the same size that they, they traditionally have been, I, I think that question is still up in the air. The issue of um, tech companies, too, hasn't hasn't gone away. And OK, Google and Facebook have cut some deals with them. Um, various newspaper groups across the world, but whether there are really enough to offset the impact of um, their extreme dominance in the online advertising market, I don't think anyone would would say that they were. Mark, we've seen the advent of big government, um, more and more big government, have we more intervention um, by the states in their economy through financial support, through uh, PUP, through wage subsidies and all that. That's happened um, during the pandemic. Will we ever be able to unwind it? Well, it's got to be very, very difficult, doesn't it? You know, economies get used to uh, to functioning on subsidies, and uh, and you know, it's very, very easy to 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 to, to sort of spray subsidies out in, in in times of difficulty and in times of crisis. Um, the difficulty is always in unwinding them. I mean, we saw that, for example, in the hospitality sector prior to the pandemic with their nine percent preferential VAT rate. Um, and uh, and and you know the 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 unwinding of that was very very painful for the sector because they had gotten so used to it. Um, and you know government, you know you know sort of a big government is back for business. Um, and, and you know interventionist government uh, is is back in fashion, and 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 it's going to continue that way for a number of years. And um, you know. Not just with regards to the pandemic, but probably again going back to climate change. That's another area where um, governments are going to intervene in a hard way over coming years to uh, restrict the kind of operations and and that that companies can engage in and restrict the kind of products that that, that people can buy and uh, and and restrict the kind of decisions that are made in boardrooms. And so yeah, so 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 big government intervention is uh, is, is is back in fashion. Um, and whether you like that or whether you don't, and obviously more COVID restrictions at the moment, but we're hoping early in the new year that they can be lifted are you optimistic for the future we saw throughout 2021 that when restrictions were wound down that irish consumers came roaring back and um, so if 
if the virus can be kept control of, um, um, well then, yeah, you, you, you would have to be uh, fairly confident about how the Irish economy is going to perform. Um, and, you know, certain sectors, you, you just don't know how they're going to perform. You just don't know how hospitality is going to go for all the reasons that we discussed earlier. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, there's no point in sitting here, um, you know, clutching our pearls and, 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 uh, and terrified that, that things aren't going to get better. Um, um, look, there's so much public money being thrown at it that maybe that in, in, in and of itself, um, um, will help to keep economies afloat. Um, um, and then the question of how all that's going to be repaid, well, look, you know, that'll be for our kids and our grandkids to worry about, Kieran. I mean, you don't have to worry about that, you know. Laurel, what do you think will be the big story for next year in media? Oh, God, I, I think there's probably going to be more focus on the legislative side of things. We're, we're still sort of halfway through this process of, of the uh, online safety and, and media regulation bill, which will eventually set up um, what's called the Media Commission, which is not to be confused with the future of Media Commission, uh, but it's a kind of a successor to the BAI, which will take an, on a whole lot of uh, online regulation uh, for the first time. So if that goes ahead, that will be a pretty big deal. Um, for the Irish media sector here. Now, of course, the future of Media Commission is supposed to be sort of, um, or indeed has made a number of rec recommendations on, on public funding of the media, but we haven't seen those yet because the government hasn't uh, published it. And of course, it's it's still, uh, that's even if when it does, it's not necessarily going to act on, on it uh, straight away. So, but but all of that conversation will, will be going on in the background Um and, you know, we, we've seen, as I said, um, Google and, and, and Facebook um, be a little bit more flexible in terms of, of uh, negotiations that they're having with uh, publishing groups across Europe. Um, so I would expect to see a little bit more progress on that front. Um, I don't think, yeah, for example, the EU is, is uh, has really um, totally got to grips with, say, things like the regulation of uh, virtual voice assistance, which is obviously very important for the audio sector. That's something we might see. Um, and it's just really a, a case of whether or not the sort of bounce back um, that we saw in 2021 for broadcasters, for example, say Virgin Media Television and ITV, you know, they both had a pretty decent year because Love Island was back on the schedules. Uh, that wasn't the only reason, but it was a huge reason. Uh, but whether or not, you know, that can, it can sustain that. I mean, they kind of say themselves that they don't ex expect it to sustain that. So um, it, it could be a, a sort of a, a colder climate in, in, in the years ahead. And it's just it'd be interesting to see now if there are any uh, moves to, uh, you know, change um, ownership or, or consolidation within within the wider wider industry in, in broadcasting. Because uh, and actually another thing I think might happen, whether it'll happen next year or not, I don't know. But, but, you know, even companies that we think of as huge, like Netflix and, and Spotify, you know, you think about them, well, they're a little bit standalone. You know, you could see Netflix and, uh, and Spotify um, uh, come together <laughs> in one company. Spotify does a bit of video. Netflix has started to do podcasts. Why not, you know, bring them all together in, in one big uh, giant company, Netflixify or something. I'm not sure. Uh, Spotflix. That's my prediction. <laughs> right, OK, we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Laura Slattery and Mark Paul, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, Cliff Taylor, Laura Slattery and Mark Paul. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock and it just remains for me to wish you all a happy and peaceful Christmas. Take care.